October 18, 1949. Magistrate Jules Forstein is gone for the evening. He eventually calls his wife Dorothy to let her know that he might be coming home a bit late. When he does arrive home, he finds his children, Edward and Marcy, huddled together in their bedroom. They're crying. Mommy's gone, they cry. Eventually, Marcy is able to tell the police that perhaps 15 minutes before her daddy came home, a noise had woken her up. She'd gone out to investigate, and she was confronted with the image of a middle-aged man wearing a brown peaked cap carrying her unconscious mother over his shoulder. When she asked what he was doing, he patted her on the head and said, Go back to sleep, little one. Your mom is fine. And then he left, locking the door behind him. This is the mysterious case of Dorothy Forstein. Still missing, still unsolved case, 73 years later. Dorothy Cooper was born in 1909. Jules Forstein was born in 1907, and they were childhood sweethearts. Both resided in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which was also their birthplace. Now, Jules actually was married to someone else before Dorothy, a woman named Molly, and he fathered two children with her, Myrna and Marcy. Sadly, Molly died in 1940, apparently in childbirth. Then Jules and Dorothy reconnected, as we hear stories about that happening sometimes, and they ended up getting married by 1942. In 1943, they had Edward, a son, and Jules had been appointed local magistrate shortly before Edward's birth. By all accounts, it was a very happy marriage. Friends described Dorothy as outgoing, happy, a devoted mother to even her stepchildren. And they lived in a three-story house in an upper-middle-class neighborhood. So everything seemed to be really great. Was October's event a horrible kidnapping that came out of left field? Something completely strange and not foreshadowed? Well, there might be some details that will make you wonder. And we're going to get to those now. January 25th, 1945. Dorothy leaves her three children with a neighbor so she can go shopping and Jules is working. Dorothy stops and speaks to some friends and the neighborhood butcher along the way, and I think the butcher on the way home. Now, when she got home and walked through her front door, someone immediately leapt out of an alcove and attacked her, first with his fists and then a blunt instrument. Dorothy loses consciousness, and in perhaps a blind stroke of fucked up luck, when she fell, she slammed into the hallway telephone. So it crashes to the floor, falling off the hook. An operator is on the other end, 
and the operator grows concerned and calls the police. And some of you, I don't know how old all of my listeners are, might remember old school telephones, but even then you might not be aware of the times, especially like in the forties where you could usually pick it up and click, click, hello, operator. There would be operators there when you open the line, right? There were even such things as party lines. My grandmother, my grandmother and grandfather on my mom's side had that, which means you shared it with, I forget how many other people it would depend in the small neighborhood. They were actually on farms. So they would have been pretty spread out. That meant that you might pick it up and hear somebody else's conversation. And that side note is how sometimes people got the gossip. You dig? You would just listen in. And if you were rude, you didn't hang up when they're like, oh, excuse me, I really need to make a call. Yeah, party lines. Actually, I dated a guy who, for some reason, out in their little farmland in the 90s had a party line. And they did have a jerk that sometimes would just sit there and blast the radio. Now, imagine having an emergency with somebody doing that. And no, there were not cell phones. Yes, I am that old. It's not really that long ago, y'all. The 90s is not that long ago. But I digress. So the phone crashes to the floor, goes off the hook. Operator is on the other end because the line has been opened or however that works. Probably is concerned that nobody's answering, right? Like, why did you, why did you pick up to contact the operator? Well, nobody's answering. So thank goodness that in that time, somebody was there on the other end of the line, right? Now, where were we before I got sidetracked? She uh, is found, when the police get there, laying on her back, and she's bloody and just beat to hell, okay? She has a broken jaw, fractured nose, and a fractured shoulder. Now, I'd first read that as she was taken to the hospital, she, she weakly was able to tell them, someone jumped out at me. I couldn't see who it was. He just hit me and hit me. I then later read that it was after she got to the hospital and was treated and then woke up. And that makes more sense to me. I don't think she was conscious when they got there still. I'm not sure. The police captain on this case was James A. Kelly. And he rather quickly decided that this had to be attempted murder. And he did a thorough inspection of this entire event. Nothing had been stolen. Nothing in the house was disturbed. The house was pristine. And that, of course, is what prompted this opinion of his, that it had to be attempted murder. Now, Jules, her husband, was at work. He had a solid alibi. They did, of course, check that. You always check that first. And it wasn't him. And everyone in the neighborhood liked Dorothy. So it just didn't make any sense to anybody. And the case went cold. Now, as you can imagine, Dorothy was deeply affected by this. She, for a long time after that, was anxious, apprehensive. Every time she heard some little strange noise, she jumped, you know, and it freaked her out. Which, yeah, I wouldn't blame her. And physically, the shoulder that had been fractured would just randomly pop out of the socket quite often. Just not cool. Not, not comfortable. Sounds terrible. Jules, for his part, for quite a while, rarely left his wife or children, unless, of course, he just had to go to work. But he couldn't think of anyone who had a grudge against him due to his job. You see, he was a local magistrate, 
And that is something that they all considered like, well, maybe this is some type of revenge because people were pissed off. A few more little details that I could find about this attack. Okay. The neighbor, a neighbor, uh, Maria Townley saw Dorothy return home that evening. She thought she saw somebody walking either with her or very close, following very close behind. It was uh, evening, just, I think it was around maybe like twilight-ish or not quite, not quite all the way dark because they mentioned there were some evening shadows being thrown and stuff. So that might have interfered with what she saw or what she thought she saw, right? It could kind of give you an illusion, but... She said she thought, you know, maybe somebody was following her. And then the moment Dorothy opened her door and walked into her house, she was jumped from behind. Another source states, oh, I already covered this, that at the hospital, yeah, is when she made her comments. Uh, Jules returned at 11.30 p.m. And his initial thought was that maybe Dorothy had gone to one of the neighbors, although he was completely stunned at the idea that she would leave the children alone. Like it would have been out, out of character, but you know, you think of things, right? You try to think of like, well, where could she be? And made many, many phone calls uh, asking if anybody had seen her and nobody had. So then he finally called the police captain, Kelly. They canvassed the neighborhood even you know went to the neighbor's doors knocked on doors talked to people and they found dorothy's purse and keys that were still in her home okay so it's really bizarre how do you not see a woman being carried out this whole thing is very weird um and at this time the children were 14 myrna was 14 marcy was five and little edward was two year old and two years old and and they did not think that the children had anything to do with it. So by the time we get to October 18th, 1949, Dorothy had, you know, over the years begun to uh, lead a somewhat normal life again. She was getting less anxious. She's like, okay, you know, I'm safe now. I'm sure she still sometimes wondered, but it's a few years now, right? And Myrna, who is 19, was away visiting friends uh, on the night of the next fateful event. And when Jules called her, he had said, I don't expect to be home too late. Is everything okay? And Dorothy's last words to him were, be sure to miss me. And that's, that was kind of chilling when I read that because I mean, oh my God, right? <laughs> that's very, that, that was, that was chilling to me and sad. Very, very sad. 9 PM that night, Dorothy did call a friend to work out the details of a uh, shopping trip they had planned for the very next day. They wanted to suss out their details. And that might possibly be the last person to speak to Dorothy outside of the home. Dorothy was reportedly wearing pajamas when she was last seen. And that is according to nine, 10 year old Marcy, who even described the pajamas when Captain Kelly, the police captain, asked her. She had on her red slippers and red silk pajamas, the ones she liked because they were so pretty. So besides the, uh, the brown peaked style hat, Marcy also told them that the man that was carrying her mom 
had a brown jacket and something stuck in his shirt. She had never seen him before, but she thought that, quote, he might be about the same age as daddy. So Marcy was the only clue, if you will. The house was pristine, as I said, not even, not even just that nothing was stolen, but there were no strange fingerprints. Locks were not tampered with or broken, and no one saw this person apparently going out carrying this limp, you know, the body of a woman. And Dorothy was, by the way, 40 years old at the time. And so an 11 state alarm was issued like to all uh, several other police stations. And I think it went nationwide after that. And as I told you at the top of this, she has never been found. And in the ensuing years, there have, of course, been, uh, you know, amateur detectives and professional detectives, internet sleuths, you know, all kind, coming up with all kinds of theories. And I would like to maybe get into some of that. But first, I did want to point out that, as you might be wondering, did the police and, and other people also wonder if Marcy's story was true? She's a child, right? Was she confused? Was she just, uh, you know, it's traumatic, so it was some sort of fantasy? And I'm not saying lying, but like you have a trauma. Maybe this is something that conjured in her head, you know, self-defense of her own feelings, you know? Or was it something worse? Did she know more? Well, she was actually interviewed by a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist confirmed that she was telling the truth. And again, people started to wonder if this was maybe some type of revenge on Jules due to his work as a magistrate. And especially since she had been attacked those five or so years before. And many people did end up accepting this as a good theory. But uh, other things to note, none of the other police stations in other states found any information on unidentified women being admitted to hospitals, hotels, convalescent homes, nothing even in morgues. Her image was distributed nationwide. Nothing. Nada. I find that just a little bit insane that not a single clue. It's very, very strange and very creepy just that somebody could just come into your house like that. And it makes you wonder, did this someone somehow have a key? I mean, of course, that's got to be my first thought. I didn't see anything about like, were there windows open or anything? It's a three-story house. And if I'm reading it correctly, they were at least on the second floor, if not third. And I'd also read another detail that Marcy saw her mother face down. He was picking, the stranger was picking her mother up from the floor where her mother was face down and I believe her mother's bedroom. So it just gets more and more bizarre. There is one theory though that seems to, uh, some people think is a, is a good theory. So in September, 1944, and I'm going to read this just straight from the-line-up.com, the lineup.com. September, 1944. A crowd had assembled in Philadelphia to protest then-Republican presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey 
while he prepared to make a speech at the Pennsylvania Railroad Station. Two Philadelphia policemen, James McCarthy and Samuel Ralston, saw Anmuth and perceived his mannerisms to be th uh, threatening. They pulled him out of the crowd on charges of inciting to riot, resisting arrest, and disorderly con conduct. Now, who is this guy that I'm talking about? Well, there is a guy named Morris Anmuth. And it's a, he's a, uh, tw he was, pardon, a 29-year-old textile salesman, Morris Anmuth. So Anmuth was fined $10 for this disorderly conduct that I just told you about. And then he countered this by filing assault and battery charges against the two officers, claiming that they beat him for nearly 20 minutes. McCarthy and Ralston were originally held on $1,000 bail each, that's a lot of money, in 1944, uh, by Magistrate James McBride. However, the charges against the officers were dropped, and none other than Magistrate Jules Forstein is the one who dropped the charges. So it's been theorized that Anmuth might have been the man who attacked Dorothy in 1945, because he was pissed off about Forstein for his lenience with the officers. And therefore, they also think Anmuth was still pissed off five years later and abducted Dorothy four or five years later, four years. In 1957, President Judge Charles Klein of the Orphan's Court stated that Dorothy would be declared officially dead as of October 18, 1956, seven years after she vanished, and just months after Jules Forstein died of heart disease. Judge Klein's decision was based on a petition filed by Dorothy's stepdaughter, Myrna. Captain David Roberts of the Philadelphia Homicide Squad concurred that all efforts of police and private investigators had failed to discover a trace of the missing woman. So, as I said, to this day, her disappearance is unsolved. There is actually a Facebook group dedicated to the Forstein case, and it was created by author Gary Sweeney, so I am going to assume that he has a book, and I am clicking on this right now. No new post in the last month. I think that I would have to join the group, so I don't know if I can do that quickly enough right now. Now, that was a very short case, so I'm going to take a moment to see if I can find anything else, or I'm going to add it completely different one. All right, so I'm here to tell you that all of the articles, as I suspected, because uh, just pretty much all say the same thing. It's that mysterious, and that was the only theory that I found. I, I did look up a bunch before I even recorded this, but I thought, well, maybe I'll check one more time. Um, I found maybe one more little detail, which is from Gary Sweeney, who I just mentioned is an author and in fact, some of the stuff that I had read to you, or that I should say my uh, sources, were actually written by him. TheLineup.com, that is his article that he wrote, Gary Sweeney. And that was published on 2016. Now let's see if I lost this page. I found something called Tapatalk.com, some sort of group. Uh, they mentioned this. This is also on December 17th. De December 17th? 2016? Looks like maybe there's only a couple of posts. So somebody else had shared this here. But I just wanted to read this extra little detail. Some things that Marcy, the daughter, 
had said. So Captain, the police captain, Kelly, had asked Marcy how her mother was dressed. And I gave you some of that quote. Marcy replied, she had on her red slippers and her red silk pajamas, the ones she liked because they were so pretty. And she didn't say anything. So Marcy then went on to describe the man, you know, brown cap with a peak, brown jacket, something stuck in his shirt, told you that. He'd never, she'd never seen him before, but he was probably the same age as daddy. The part I wanted to, I lost it now, dang it, was what she said about waking up. And how did I already lose this? Here we go. I woke up and it was late. I don't know whether I heard voices or whether I just woke up. I went to the head of the stairs and there was a man coming up. He went to mommy's room in the front and through a crack in the door, I could see her lying on her face on the rug. She looked sick. The man turned her over on her back and picked her up. He put her over his shoulder so her head hung down his back. When I asked him what he was doing, he said, Go back to sleep, little one. Your mommy has been sick, but she will be all right now. Ugh, that gives me the creeps. Right? That just gives me the creeps. That is about the only other detail, though. They also talk about the theory that I already gave you. The guy with the disorderly conduct, etc. Morris Anmuth. There's a really nothing else. It's completely unsolved. So if you want to try to check out the uh, Facebook group, Dorothy Feinstein. Shall I come up with another unsolved? But that because that is actually very short. So let's do another one. Okay, you know what? As this episode is about a cold case on a missing person, I am now going to bring your attention to cases that are still open, still unsolved. And the ones that I'm going to read to you today are from um, www.nps.gov slash org slash 1563 cold So this is National Parks. Name, James Pruitt. P-R-U-I-T-T, missing from the Rocky Mountain National Park, and he went missing February 28th, 2019. He was 70 years old when he went missing, white male, 5 foot 6 inches tall, 150 pounds, blue eyes, and brown-gray hair. It's believed that he was wearing a dark blue jacket, a red-orange-style beanie hat, blue jeans, and maybe carrying a small camera bag with a Nikon Coolpix 900 cam uh, camera. Case information is that Pruitt left from Glacier Gorge parking lot on February 28th, 2019 for a day hike to an unknown destination. U.S. Park Rangers located his vehicle on March 3rd, 2019 and determined that though it had been parked overnight, no backcountry permit was associated with it. Rangers contacted Pruitt's family, who advised them that Pruitt had had no intentions of staying overnight in the park, and they had last heard from him on February 28th. The National Park Service initiated extensive search efforts in the area. Due to a lack of clues and extreme winter conditions, the search entered limitless continuous operations on March 11, 2019. Additional coordinated search efforts were conducted on multiple occasions during the summer and fall of 2019. If you have inf any information, call the tip line at 888-653-0009. Missing. Jonyon Wan. That's J-O-N-G-H-Y-O-N-W-O-N. 
also missing from Grand Canyon National Park since, since September 17th, 2017. He was 45 years old at the time, Asian male, five foot seven, 121 pounds, brown eyes, black hair. He was in a white Toyota Camry, uh, Los Angeles plates, uh, California plates, found at Morin Point on the south rim of Grand Canyon National Park on September 17, 2017. The vehicle was previously seen near the New Hans Trailhead. He had no plans in the area. His current whereabouts are unknown. Peter Jackson, missing from Yosemite National Park since September 17, 2016. He was 74 years old at the time, white male, 5'10", 155 pounds, blue eyes, gray hair and beard. Excellent physical condition, carrying a Royal Blue Outdoor Products day pack. It's believed that he went for a day hike from his campsite at White Wolf Campground, but he never returned. He sent a text message to his son saying that he was on the way to the, the park on September 17th, 2016. His vehicle was found at the campground and camping fees were paid through September 21st. As of October 2nd, 2016, the search for Jackson was placed in continuous limited mode and then August 2019, his backpack was found in the Ackerson Meadow Aspen Valley area on the west side of Yosemite National Park. Floyd E. Roberts III, missing since June 17, 2016, Grand Canyon National Park. He was 52 years old at the time, white male, 5'11", 170 pounds, brown gray hair and brown eyes, last seen wearing a red long sleeve shirt, blue denim jeans, multicolored mesh Nike free sneakers, large blue low alpine contour backpack and white rim sunglasses with orange lenses, carrying a day pack. By the way, I will put this link in the show notes because of course they have photographs of everyone here. So Roberts became separated from his companions during extreme heat conditions while they were starting a multi-day hike in a remote portion of Western Grand Canyon on the Shivwitz Plateau. The group planned a nine-day hike that would exit the canyon via Separation Canyon. How ominous. He was last seen near Kelly Tank heading towards Trail Canyon, 214-mile canyon, which is a Shanley Spring area, towards the river, but might have descended in the 209-mile canyon, 209-mile canyon. Following an intensive six-day search, the incident remains unresolved. It's continuous limited mode. They're still searching. Now, if you're wondering, like, why am I'm not purposely picking out, like, a bunch of uh, males or white males, okay? I just think that maybe they were more commonly going hiking. You know, there's just, these are the people that have gone hiking and they went missing. Morgan Heimer, missing from Grand Canyon National Park. Since June 2nd, 2015, he was 22 years old at the time, white male, six foot tall, 175 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes, last seen wearing dark colored astral personal flotation device and a blue plaid long sleeve shirt, Chaco brand sandals, a maroon baseball cap and brightly colored shorts. He was carrying a purple water bottle. Heimer was last seen on Tuesday, June 2nd, 2015, around Colorado River Mile 213 near Pumpkin Springs. Again, the tip line is 888-653-0009. Drake Kramer, January 31st, 2015. He was 21 years old at the time, white male, 5 foot 8, 140 pounds, brown hair and blue eyes, 
wears dark colored clothes, and is known to wear a backwards baseball cap or dark colored bandana on his head. He drove a silver Mazda 6 sedan to the park. He was last seen at Bright Angel Lodge and is believed to be suicidal, which is very sad. The search for Kramer is in continuous limited mode. I mean, these, these go on forever, you guys. Uh, this is very sad. Samuel Volk, October 14, 2006. He was eight years old when he went missing. White male, four foot eight, 85 pounds, light brown hair, brown eyes, last seen wearing a long sleeve black and green striped shirt, cargo pants, red suede shoes, and a blue winter coat. He has a mole under his right ear and a mole on the left side of his throat. He was last seen 4 p.m. October 14, 2006 in Crater Lake National Park. He is also, of course, listed on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And we are now going to go to that website because these poor children. Let's go there because I could I will also put this link. There's just so many. They have uh, pictures here, by the way, a reason that I want to share the links and such. They do the age up photographs of what they think they might look like now. And they're very good at this, okay? This was Crater Lake, Oregon, that it says he's missing from. Oh, and it took me straight to his. I was, uh... You can report sightings here, by the way. You can call tip lines. You can report right here on the website. There are a lot of, there's a lot of help for, um, resources on trafficking and, and everything. Just, you can search for missing children you can put in poster you can put in the names and everything here and get information on anybody that you know about have heard i should say i'm going to read a couple that are very new here one is february 2nd 2022 amber alert an active amber alert and one is june 16 2021 both tennessee uh let's go first to summer wells missing since june 15 2021 Rogersville, Tennessee, five years old, female, white, with blonde hair, eye color is blue, she's about three feet tall, she weighs 40 pounds, she was last seen wearing gray pants, a pink shirt, and might be barefoot. The Amber Alert was issued on behalf of the Hawkins County Sheriff's Office for Summer Moon, Utah, Wells. If you have seen her or have any information on her whereabouts, contact the Hawkins County Sheriff's Office at 423-272-7121 or you can call 1-800-TBI-FIND, F-I-N-D. The next one that is an active Amber Alert. Oh my God, y'all. Missing since February 1, 2022 from Memphis, Tennessee at two days old. This is just a, a newborn. Female, black, with brown hair, brown eyes, 17 inches long, 6 pounds. This is a two-day-old two baby, at least as of February, getting to be, uh, you know, about a month old now. Last seen wearing a black and white polka dot onesie and pink pants. So this was issued an Amber Alert in Memphis, Tennessee. On behalf of the Memphis Police Department, I should say. Last known to be in the area of Sedgwick Drive and Levi Road in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have seen Kennedy or have information regarding her whereabouts, 
please contact Memphis Police Department 901-545-2677 or 1-800-TBI-FIND. That's just heartbreaking. Just a little baby. And this is straight up like a hospital picture with the little hospital bracelet and everything. And it's horrible. And I want to continue on this. Just a short break while I find some more. All right, y'all. All you have to do is go to FBI.gov after Googling missing persons. And on the very first page that pop up, pops up, there are 105 items. Tammy Mahoney, Amy Lynn Bradley, Naomi Christine Irion, Marisol Cortez, Brandon Abbott, Karen S. Adams, Bethany Leanne Markowski, Armando Diaz, Danielle Imbo, Richard Petron, Asha Jaquila Degree, Hanuel O, Sarah Nicole Graham, Matthew Allen Mullaney, Eileen Beth Michelhoff, April Jean Bailey, Lena Sadar Kill, Jose Esquaro Che Dominguez, Shanice Harris, Natasha Alex Carter, Susan Gale Carter, William Ebenezer Jones Jr., Caitlin Michelle Aikens, Vanessa Morales, John Buitran, Michaela Joy Garrett, Jane McDonald Crone, Jalek L. Rainwalker, Aranza Maria Oca Lopez, Carla Rodriguez, Wanda Faye Walker, Robert Garrett Stewart Jr., Dolce Maria Alves, Mary Johnson (parentheses Davis), Shauna Janelle Peoples, Abby Lynn Patterson, Amina and Bilal Kandil, Casey Lynn McDaniel, Austin Bennett Teese, Lori Ann Boffman, Sarah Burton, Lashaya S. Tyne, Crystal Rogers, Margaret Ellen Fox, Donita Wilkerson, Amanda DeGio, Liliana and Daniela Moreno, that looks like a mother and daughter, Philoma Look, Melina Look, Tabitha Danielle Tudors. The other two, that I think they are sisters. Robert Craig Ellert, Luis Davila, Matthew Tyler Henry, Ariana Fitz, just a little girl, Sydney Mizell, Robert A. Levinson, Carla Vincentini, Khadija Rose Britton, Christine Marie Easton, Melissa Fu, Amber Ayas, Felix Batista, Stephen Earl Craft Jr., Carly Lane Goose, Lisa Irwin, Joshua Kashaba Sierra Garcia, Tara Leigh Calico, Amanda K. Jones, Laverda Sorel, Kieran Richard Horman, Jesus Eduardo Pérez Lopez, Alexis S. Patterson, Mark Randall Frericks, Amber Elizabeth Cates, Antoinette or Antoinette Christine Cayedito, Shaina Ashley Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick, Shasha Latin Henson, Mira Lewis, and that is Shasha is a baby. Maj Kamala Maj, I'm sorry, these some of these names are difficult for me. I'm doing my best. Kamal Maz, okay, Rachel Louise Cook, Mark Heimbaugh, Enrique Rios, Elijah Moore, Kristen Madafuri, Sunny Shramek, Dana Rishpi, Tina Marie Finley, Jennifer Lynn Markham, Ashley Summers, Tionda Z. Bradley, Diamond Yvette Bradley, Nefer Tiri R. Trader, 
Suzanne G. Lyle, Relisha Tanal Rudd, Lisa Michelle Stibeck, Crystal N. Timick, David Williams, Stephen Anderson, Kiosha Marie Felix, Cole Dong Vu, Paul Edwin Overby Jr., Kristen Denise Smart, Ryan Braden Chikovsky, Shilibi Yusuf Alaisami, Cheyenne Kazemi. And yes, I just read all those names because all of the details are here if you want to click on them. I wanted to say their names and I'm going to share this website because then you can click on them and get all of the details. I will go ahead and pick a couple of them. Actually, I'm going to pick the, the top one here I want to bring to your attention is Naomi Christine Irian. This is a case that is happening as we speak. She went missing about two weeks ago. They did arrest a suspect, but he is not giving them any information as far as I know. I haven't seen any updates on that. She was born July 5th, 2003. Her hair is dyed black, but naturally brown. Her eyes are green and one has brown in it, so they might look two different colors. She is 5'11", weighs 230 to 250 pounds, female, obviously race white. She has a septum piercing and a smiley face tattoo on her right ankle. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $10,000 for information leading to the location of Naomi Christine Irion. She was last seen wearing a blue Panasonic company shirt, a gray cardigan sweater, gray pants, and brown boots. She was carrying a black purse. Her iPhone, it's a 10 or 11, has not been found as of this posting here. So she was last seen in a Walmart parking lot in Fernley, Nevada, March 12, 2022, at approximately 5 a.m. when she was abducted. And there are there is surveillance video that you could find of a guy in like a hooded sweatshirt that they think is the guy. I think that's who's in custody now. Uh, walking around kind of creepily and just like he's the only one out there and then suddenly stops and turns around and looks straight at where her car was parked apparently it's it's really creepy to watch when you know that so she was a she was a disappeared 5 a.m. I think some people might have even seen or the family knows more than what they can tell us publicly you know so don't harass them her sisters on TikTok. I know you can see some videos there that the person got in her driver's side, but we don't know if he threatened her or had a weapon, but got in and she, she slid over that just kind of seeing it in the dark from behind. Apparently I don't, you know, there's not a lot of detail. So it was three days later that they found her vehicle next to a Sherwin Williams Western emulsion plant. So they found her vehicle and that's being processed, but they have not found Naomi. So again, if you have any information, contact the local, your local FBI office or an American embassy or consulate. And the field office here for this would be Las Vegas. You can also submit anonymous, anonymous tips here online. And this, as I said, is ongoing right this moment. There's a chance could still find her alive and and just yeah i'm going to share this link 
uh, everything uh, you can see on this website, you know, the, the, the links you can click, 10 most wanted fugitives, uh, terrorism, kidnappings, missing persons, parental kidnappings, etc., etc. It's a very good resource. And if you've never looked at it, you really should. There's also a poster, a link here to download, download a poster that you could probably print off a flyer with her picture, Naomi. And I'm sure you'll find that for a lot of the other ones as well. I am uh, basically driving home to you the point that there's a whole lot of missing people. And particularly if you notice, there were a lot of women and children on this FBI page when I was reading their names to you. These aren't people who went hiking. These are straight up probably abducted, okay? Just straight up kidnapped. They weren't, they weren't maybe even going anywhere. She, she, was, she was waiting for, um, Naomi was waiting for the shuttle to work, I believe, which she had done countless, countless, countless times, okay? Makes you wonder if somebody was watching her and stalking her. I'm sure that news will develop as this goes. One last time, Naomi Christine Irion, I-R-I-O-N. If you know anything, please contact the FBI. I'm going to enlarge the poster here for myself to see if there is... There's no other phone number. They just say uh, contact the FBI. You can absolutely download this poster and print it if you want to put out flyers where you are. They have a picture of her also on the surveillance video, how she looked. I think she's at a gas station um, right on the the morning that she disappeared. So it shows how she was dressed and how she looks right now. And I'm going to stop there for this episode of Unsolved Cases and missing persons and if you have one you would like me to highlight old new you know re recent i should say that needs any kind of attention is you know good attention on this let me know sroyt at pinkyswearpress.com i will put up photographs particularly of naomi and then of course of the cold case that i covered because uh, you know it's just kind of driving me nuts now that i read about it if you have any ideas or tips and you want to see photographs of these people to see if you recognize anybody, find me on the socials at podpinky on Twitter because I can put links up there as well. Buymeacoffee.com slash pinkypod. I would appreciate a little support. It would be so great, you know, even just a buck that, you know, so I can keep doing what I'm doing and maybe, maybe do some good somewhere along the way. Um, I'm also on... I have my own website, pinkyswearpress.com, and I'm on Instagram, pinky underscore podcast. And that, I think, will wrap it up for this week's episode. And don't forget those phone numbers. I will put them in the show notes. That That's the stuff you read in the summary, or maybe some people read and some people don't. Thank you for listening, as always. And I, I really got my fingers crossed and the candles lit and the, you know, trying to put good vibes out there that Naomi will be found safe. And these 105 people on the FBI website and everywhere else, the great in the uh, national parks, stay safe out there. And as far as like when you go hiking, I never used to worry too much about it because I think, Oh, I'm just going on a day trip. Always tell somebody where you are. And if, if they have those hiking passes at places, even if you think you're not staying the night, I say maybe go ahead and fill them out. Just 
so somebody knows where you are just in case because you also can't necessarily always get cell phone service out there okay be safe keep your eyes out and don't hurt anybody all right Pupau.